Okay. Well, I got to tell you, I love coming here. I, I, I totally enjoy you guys, and I, Jesus, it's all good. Whatever. Okay, so uh, we played our last softball game last Monday night. That's how we feel because we didn't win the tournament. So. Anyway, huh? we won the first one, but not the next two. So anyway, uh, our season's over, and we're going to have a little get-together on December 7th. 7th. Huh? Pearl Harbor Day. Wow. Are we going to do something with that? Like, we're going to... No, we're not going to sink anything out in the back here? Okay. It's your house. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so uh, we're going to get together, and the team's going to get together. If you were a fan, okay, okay, and you came, okay, you are also invited to the shindig. You can get together and hang out with us, and you'll hobnob with all the special softball people. You get free autographs that day, okay, just for you. Uh, we're we're going to pick up, like, tri-tip and bread and stuff like that. So uh, since we – just sign up in the back if you want to co- – boy, you're just like a teleprompter without the, like, blue screen. That's, like, got it, got it. Anyway, uh, uh, because we are buying tri-tip stuff, if you want to come, we, we don't mean just, like, charge you to come, but we're trying to pay for the stuff so Brit isn't, like, poor after this. So uh, bring, like, five bucks to, to cover the cost of, like, the meat and the bread and stuff like that. So. Uh, Anyway, so I, uh, I wanted to give this to Britt. Britt was our coach all year. So go ahead and come up here, Britt. Britt, Stanley. Stop talking to Kathy. He's my teleprompter, not yours. Why don't you come up here? So I, I, got, I got Britt. This gift certificate for being our coach and everything, it's for a pedicure. Yeah. What color are the toes? Whatever color you want. I will even go with you. Are you a, any dudes ever had pedicures in here? Are you serious? Yes, I am dead serious. It's the best. Okay, if you are a dude, we'll find out where Brit's going. We'll all go together. Honestly? Is there like an open bar or something? No, but you might think it's girly, but it is the best. They massage your feet. And then if you have calluses, they just kind of scrape them off. So thank you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I couldn't have done it without all of you guys. Uh, we also went bowling yesterday, and the person who got the highest score didn't show up for dinner because he just shined his on because he's like that. But uh, Chad Schaefer got the high. You're like, I got to stand up. I'm embarrassed to get here. You got a you're welcome. He bowled 170, which is amazing for, I guess, normal people who aren't like bowling geeks or anything. Like, never mind. Yeah, you just let that go right there. I had somebody ask me uh, last week, they said, about the men's breakfast, they said, do you record those so that we can download and listen to them? And uh, I said, no, because we talk about special man stuff, and it's a secret. And so we don't let women know about our... What's that? What's that from the Little Rascals? The He-Man Woman, He-Man Woman Haters Club. Yeah, we don't really hate women. We we really like women. But uh, <laughs> okay, so you know we just don't record it. So you just have to come. Uh, the next one's actually in January. So if you're wondering, you should come to that. Um, this Wednesday night we're doing our uh, Thanksgiving get together. And if you're new or haven't been here or haven't heard me just beat this into the ground, I'm going to do it again today. 
we are getting together this Thursday, this Wednesday night to, to celebrate a little pre-Thanksgiving thing. We want everybody to sign up and everybody to come to this. And I say that every week and everybody's like, yeah, I got it. And then you guys walk out just right past the sign-ups, right outside and leave. We want everybody to come. Right now there's about 30 people in, in each home. And so you're going to show up, you're going to bring a dessert, you'll get an email giving you directions to the house that you're going to go to. You can bring some friends if you want, and you feel all like, oh, I want to be able to talk to somebody. Okay, so we'll bring some friends, it's, it's cool. You know, we'll have enough food for them. And you just bring like a dessert or whatever Michelle sends you to, to bring. You show up, we're going to get together, hang out, talk to people, and then do a little Thanksgiving thing. It's going to be really neat, kind of intimate, kind of fun. So we want everybody to come. Like I said, once again, we have about 30 people at each house right now. We would like 100. Except for the people who have the houses. And it, it was so funny. Someone, I, who, I was walking in and, and they said, uh, what if it rains? And I said, that's ah, not my house. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hi, how are you doing? We're doing it one at their house. Uh, anyway, so you guys should sign up. You should come. It, it's going to be a lot of fun and we'd like it to be there. Uh, if you got an email from Michelle already about where you're going and what, and, and what to bring, she forgot to tell you what time. Okay, so it's going to start at 6.30. So if you got the email, just print it, write it on there, 6.30, come. If you haven't signed up yet, sign up outside. You'll get an email either today or a phone call, either today or tomorrow or Tuesday, telling you where to go. <laughs> go never mind. So you could, That could turn out really bad, couldn't it? Yeah. All right. Um, why don't you guys stand there? You're reading God's Word. We will start going. It says Isaiah 64, verse 1, and it says this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who are humble, who, in a sense, tremble before you, so that we would hear the things that you want to say to us, that our hearts would become humble, and that we would trust you to go into the places that you send us, and that we would live for you so people know the goodness and the greatness of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. We are going through the Gospel of John. Okay, if you've been here for a while, you, you know we're doing that. If you're brand new, you're going to be like, how's this the Gospel of John? This morning we're taking a detour. So we're, we're going to actually, I'm going to show you a little bit maybe of a background, a tiny bit of what the woman at the well, maybe her mindset was like uh, from what we were looking at last week. So we'll get the woman at the well in just a little bit. So we're going to hit John in the middle. But first I want you guys to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. It's amazing how Scripture all fits together the way that it does. Come back to John in the middle of this, but just go with me here, and you're going to have a, we're going to have a good time. You're going to learn so much this morning, you're not going to know what to do with yourself. Okay, the story, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The story I want to share with you is of a guy named Naaman. It starts like this. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Okay, so there is this nation. The nation is called Aram. Aram has a king. The king has a commander. The commander's name is Naaman. Naaman is a military guy. Naaman has distinguished himself in how he commands an army. He is a master strategist. If there is a hill, he would take the hill. If there's a battle to be won, he would win the battle. His advancement didn't happen by accident. Uh, he's also very wise in the ways of politics, so he rises to be the top general in the land. This is actually in modern day. This is where Syria is today. In 2 Kings chapter 5, you get a snapshot of Naaman's life at its peak. And then the very next line, you read this. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, let me show you what's going on here. When you read, he is a great man. This, this word for great man, this is the word ish gadul. Okay, ish, say it with me, ish gadul. 
Okay, you guys are great. You just Hebrew scholars all around. Okay, in Hebrew, the word for man is ish. Okay, when Adam names Eve his wife, he calls her isha because it's you know from man. And so you have ish. He is ish, but he is also a gadul. Gadul is like deep and significant and weighty. This is an ish gadul is a very rare person. You almost never find an ish gadul. They are so weighty and so deep. It is, it is a very rare person that is an Ishkadul. But then you read, he had leprosy. In this first line, he gives you so much information. Because he has leprosy, that means that he is a Masora. Everybody say Masora. Okay, Masora means outcast. So you have an Ishkadul with, with weightiness and, and greatness, and yet he is an outcast. It doesn't... It doesn't go together. This, this is a paradox because you can't have an Ishkadul and an outcast. This is a very big problem. He just defeated the armies of Israel. He killed Israel's current king. He returns to Aram with power and fame and, and wealth and, and lots of slaves. And the irony is that Naaman controls troops. He holds the life and death of thousands in his hands. And he has a plan and he can buy and bribe and intimidate all kinds of people. But he can't do anything about this little patch of reality on his own skin known as leprosy. Reality has shown up and said, Naaman, you're mortal. Uh, I, there's this movie, and I can't remember where this quote came from, but somebody says, a man's got to know his limitations. And uh, Luke's dad walked up and he said, that's from Dirty Harry. So apparently, there you go. Man's got to know his limitations. Biblical truth from Dirty Harry. Uh, in the, yeah. In, in the ancient world, leprosy equals death. You have leprosy, you die. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. And all of his brains and all his courage, all his connections can do nothing. He's going to die. Verse 2. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. So there's this girl. She is dragged from her home and from her parents and from her life. She now has no hope to ever get married, to have children of her own, to have a life of her own. If Naaman's at the top, this girl's at the bottom. This is, when you see most of the story, it's a story of opposites and irony, how things go back and forth like this. This girl is a slave. She's a prisoner of war. She's female. And Naaman puts her there. And eventually the life of Naaman is going to fall to the knowledge that this slave girl has. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. Oh, where does he live? Samaria. Now, last week we looked at that with the woman at the well. He would cure him of his leprosy. She is talking about the prophet Elisha, a man of God who could heal Naaman. I can't imagine Naaman's response. I just went down there and killed a whole lot of them. I don't think that's the best place for me to go and ask for someone to heal me. You know, Elisha is an Israelite. This is, I mean, Naaman and, and Israel, they, they're going to hate each other at this point. You know, he just killed their king. This would be, for Naaman, this would be like George Bush going to Saddam Hussein's personal physician and asking for help. Can you, can you help me? This would be like a militant Palestinian going to the middle of Tel Aviv and asking for help. And this is a slave girl telling him what to do. But if you're an Ishkadul, what are you going to do anyway? You're going to die unless you do something. You have no other option. So verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. This is the new one since you killed the other one. Uh, so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. So he takes 750 pounds of silver, he takes 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothes. So you can interpret that one for yourself. You're, you're good there. The king of Aram, he, he doesn't really know how to proceed in this, because he doesn't know about God. He doesn't know what, what God is like. He just assumed that kings are in control. 
of everything. And so a king should have control over this magic fairy dust that should heal Naaman. So the king writes a letter to Israel's king. Verse 6, this is what it says. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. If you're the king of Israel, what are you like? Oh, crap. <laughs> you know, these guys just killed the last... What am I going to do? I want to show you kind of what's going on here, too. Now, here's a map. On the top, you see D. Okay, this is Damascus. This is where Aram is. And then down here, you see this S, and that's Samaria. That's where Israel is. Uh, the story goes like this. You have these guys up in Aram, and they're going down into Israel. They attack. They kill. They take back up to Aram. He finds leprosy. He takes another trek back down into Israel. The god of Aram is known as uh, the god Ramon, okay? The god Ramon. Now, this, this is the thunderer god. Eventually, in Greek mythology, he becomes Zeus. The king of Aram's name at that time is Ben-Hadad. Ben means son, and Hadad is another name for Ramon. So, this guy, the king of Aram, goes by the name, son of Ramon, son of God. Okay? The guy in Aram, son of God. Israel's king is named Jehoram, is, is Jehoram, and his name actually means shown, he who is shown mercy, or he who is loved. Israel's God is Yahweh. In, in your Bible, when you look, you'll just see the Lord. All through the Old Testament, you just see the word the Lord. That's, that's Yahweh. Two countries, two kings, two gods. The god, Ramon, is not able to cure Naaman. Not able at all. So the son of God sends his general to the country of another god that a slave girl recommends. Do you see the irony? Yeah. The king of Israel obviously is not happy. He's a corrupt coward, as was his father. I don't have the magic fairy dust. I don't know what to do. So he freaks out. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. And we read that and we say, Try the decaf. Buddy, you're, you're freaking out. You just got some gold and some free t-shirts. Life's good. You know, it's great. This king thinks that, that the king of Aram wants to pick a fight with him so he can come and kill him. He is thinking about himself. But the point is that the king of Israel, according to those in Aram, is supposed to be a representative of Israel's God. Is that true? Yes, that is true. He is supposed to be that. As well as the priest. When Jesus comes, he is, our, he is our king. He is our priest. The pagan king of this other country thinks Israel's God can heal Naaman. He has more faith in Israel's God than the king of Israel. Naaman takes the trip. He believes and has more faith in the God of Israel than the king of Israel has in that God. The unfaithful have more faith than those who are supposed to be of the faith. Do you see the irony? Yes, everything is on its head. It's great storytelling. I wish I could write like this. It'd be, it'd be great. So the king's freaking out. He's scheduling appointments with his therapist, you know, and Elisha hears about it. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man, you know, you just got 10 new sets of clothes. I guess you can afford that now. Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Naaman goes to Elisha's. Now, when you read this, this horses, horses and chariots, this is a large motorcade. This is a lot of people. This is the trappings of war. Today's language would be like he showed up with tanks and helicopters, war engines. And Elisha, at this point, probably lives in a small little hut. So, trappings of war, little hut. See the opposites and the irony? Okay. 
whatever. All right. So he's in this hut. Now, he is in, he's in Ishkadul. You expect someone to come out to an Ishkadul when they show up at the house. But Elisha doesn't. Elisha sends out his messenger, his intern. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Every time I read that, I'm like, yes, that's great. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. What just happened is unheard of. Hey, when an Ishkadul shows up at your house, you run outside. You bow down. You, like, clean off your sidewalk before they walk in your house. You vacuum. You reset the furniture. You clean off that kitchen table from all the stuff that's been stacked up there for two months because your wife can't put anything away. <laughs> you, everything's clean. It's pristine. It's, don't tell her I said that. She's in the back room. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. This is an Ishkadul, and you go out and you meet them in that way. A prophet doesn't leave his house. He simply says, go wash in the Jordan. Here's some pictures of the Jordan. You know, we think, oh, it's Israel, and oh, the Jordan's so nice. This is the Jordan. It's like, don't swim in it with your mouth open, right? Here's another picture. This is the Jordan. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go wash myself in that and get dysentery. It doesn't help me get rid of my leprosy. It just makes me poop a lot. So it's not going to help me. Verse 11, we're just going to keep going, okay. Uh, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he surely would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. He expects a southern preacher. He's going to say, what? Naaman, be healed. And he's be like, that's what I was thinking. You know, I think he's going to come out he's going to Benny hit me or something. Okay bad Christian joke. I'm really sorry. Okay. He says, are not Havana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman belittles the Jordan River. In comparison, it's small, it's muddy, it's, it's not very glamorous. He is an Ishkadul. He should be baptized in the ocean. He shouldn't be baptized in the Santa Maria Basin after the next good rain. He, ocean. He's an Ishkadul. Why the Jordan? Any river is better than the Jordan River. He's offended because it has hurt his prize. The last place he expects to find God is in the Jordan River. And he's going to die, but he's got his pride intact. Go for him. This reflects a lot about his character. For us, before you proceed, you've got to ask yourself this question. Do you see any of Naaman in you? Is there any of that in you? You don't want to do something small, something seemingly meaningless. You know, we do a, a church cleaning day. Oh, I'm not going to stay for a church cleaning day. Holy cow, I hate dirt. You know, it's something meaningless, something small. God always seems to put the small things in front of us. You know, it's the small things that count. Put your card away at the grocery store. And people ask me all the time. I, I, I go to Costco, and I sit on the other side of that stinking parking lot. And I put that, I walk that thing off, and I put it away. People are like, why do you do that? You know, just leave it where everybody else is. And I go, because I'm supposed to put it away. I do. So, well, whatever, you don't, you should put it away. You pick up your trash. You, know, you, you do little things. You, you offer a meal, friendship to someone around you that, that needs it. You, know, you, you seek to give comfort to maybe somebody who hasn't, somebody who's very lonely. It is hard for prideful people to enter the kingdom of God because it's about simple, humble things that make us grow. I mean, God essentially says to Naaman and to you and I, I will meet with you, but I will decide the place. I will decide. You know, and it's not going to be where you're going to expect and I will usually ask you to do something not very glamorous and not very impressive. You know, you will have to listen for me and the voices of those around you. Meet me at the Jordan River. One of the hardest things for people is to realize that it is our humbleness that enables us to hear God. 
when we think we have got all figured out and how everybody's supposed to live and how everybody's supposed to do anything, that's when we're on shaky ground. We need to be humble when we come to God. God longs to speak with us. I just don't know how much we really want to listen to what God wants to say to us because there are so many things He's already said and we don't listen because we don't like it. I mean, God says things like, love your neighbor. Well, I love my neighbors. Do you even know your neighbors? Have you talked to them? You know, God, God says things like, you have no other gods before me. Well, I don't. Well, do you focus on yourself and get all of your time and effort and your money and everything just to you? You're your own God. God says things like this. Sex is for the confines of a marriage covenant. Well, he wasn't really serious about that, was he? Yeah, he actually was. God says, be honest and don't lie. You know, someone goes, do these pants make my butt look big? No, your butt makes your butt look big. I mean, you know what? <laughs> you know. He says, don't steal. You know, well, I'm just going to fudge my taxes a little bit. You know, I could say I gave this to the goodwill this year. And you know, you know. The point, why do we expect God to talk to us and tell us things if we don't follow what he's already said? I mean, that's the story of Naaman. It's a story of learning humbleness and realizing that God's way is really the best way even when you are a ishgadul, even when it seems to go against our sensibilities. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? He says, if God told you, you know, go out and, and win a battle, conquer a nation, give millions, well, you would do that because it shows your greatness and your renown. He said, but that is not what God says. Why not follow God when he asks you to do something very small? And we don't know because the text doesn't tell us how long Naaman stood there, how long he debated this. You know, am I going to cut this servant's head off or am I actually going to go wash in the river? We don't know that. There's one issue. I got years of pride and self-sufficiency and independence or the other is this message of humbleness. In verse 14 it says, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became like, clean like that of a young boy. I just think that's... Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. Now, this is going to be awkward because he gets in a rage and a huff and, oh, I'm leaving. And now he comes back to Naaman. I mean, he goes back to Elisha's house and he walks up and Elisha's like, hey, you look clean like a young boy. <laughs> he stood before him and Elisha sees him now. So this is Naaman standing before Elisha and, he, and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Listen to this. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. What Naaman says is huge. This is a complete life switch for him. In the world, in history at this time, except in Israel, they all believed in localized deities. Remember when I showed you the map with Damascus and then Syria, uh, uh, Israel down here? You know, there'd be a God up here in Israel, um, up here in Samaria, and you would go and... <laughs> up here in Aram, and you would go and you would worship this God on this soil. And if you went over to another, like, oh, I'll go to Lebanon, I'll worship the God over in, in Lebanon. Oh, if I go, I'm going to worship the God over here and, and do this over here. And, and there's all these different gods in all these different places. And that's how the world understood everything at that time. If you went to a region, you would say, who is the God of this area? And then you would offer sacrifices to the God of that area. That's how they understood things at that time. In a small corner of the world... The, called Israel, there came a people who said, I don't think so. There is one God, and this God is God over everybody and everything. And it's a mind-blowing idea because this God isn't a God you seek after and you, and you kill your kids. and do all. This God is a God who reveals himself to people because he loves people, because he created people. Everybody thinks there are localized deities except for the Israelites who believe that their God 
is for everybody. Their God is for everyone. Gigantic new concept. So when Naaman says, now I know he has been enlightened. What the Jews have been saying now makes sense. He understands. He takes a giant step forward. And he says this, Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So because Elisha wanted to take something, Naaman then asked something from him. Verse 17, If you will not, said Naaman, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So he says, So can I have some dirt? And he's like, Got lots of it. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, this is, so he does. He fills up some things, takes them. Now, why does he do this? Why does he ask for dirt? Because he thinks that God is only worshipped on that dirt. He thinks that's what you have to do, that the dirt is connected to the God of that place. He wants to pour out the dirt back home, so when he worships the Lord, he can worship God on that dirt, because God is the God of that dirt. He just said, now I know there is no God in all the world except this one. And then he takes a huge step back. Does he get some things? Does he understand some stuff? Yes, he does. But then on the other hand, does he still have a ways to go? Yeah. So unlike us. <laughs> and we are in the exact same. This, we think that we know all this stuff, but we only know a little bit. We have to be humble to learn to grow so God speaks to us and puts us where he needs us to be so we hear and listen to the things he longs to say to us. I mean, this passage is loaded because it transcends his worldview. But he has a way to go. He sees a larger idea, but there are some practices and some old habits that need to be taken care of, just like us. Now, leave your finger there and then flip over to John chapter 4. Because I know you're going, what does this have to do with the book of John? We're going to get there. Book of John, a woman at the well. In John 4, Jesus is a rabbi. He's called a prophet. He's called a man of God. He is called the son of God. The events of Elisha and Naaman happen in Samaria. Roughly 833 years later, Jesus meets a woman in Samaria. John chapter 4, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet, like Elisha. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So the story is like of Naaman and Elisha is a story about is this God worshipped here or is the God worshipped over there as opposed to a God who can be worshipped anywhere anywhere and then you see Jesus called a prophet in Samaria getting into a discussion about whether God is worshipped there or here very interesting Verse 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman wants to find out, is God worshipped there or is God worshipped here? And what does Jesus say? Yes. Yes, both. Anyone, anywhere can worship God in spirit and in truth. All uh, space is sacred. It isn't like God is at the church service and not in your office. It's not like God is with two or three praying and not in the carpool lane on the freeway. She says, is God worshipped here or there? He says, yes. Who owns God? No one. He is accessible to everybody. Everybody. God is just as present when you're doing laundry as when you're here at Element. Sometimes even more when you're doing laundry. 
This is a good message for us because it's not about location. It's about orientation. It's about your heart and what you become aware of. Uh, go back to Second Kings, uh, verse 18. I'm going to finish this off and bring it all together. Be great. Verse 18. This is Naaman. He continues and he says this, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. Okay, so he just said, one God, give me some dirt, okay? May your servant forgive, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm, I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. What he says is, I've got to go back to work. And it's really tricky where I am because I work for the king, the son of Ramon. And when the king goes in the temple area, he leans on me. And if I am the king's right-hand man and he bows down, I have to bow down too. This is where I live. Will God forgive me? And Elisha's response, Oh, no way. You've got to take a stand. Oh, no way. Heaven or hell, turn or burn, buddy. If you don't take a stand for something, you're going to fall for nothing. Whatever that. Here, take this t-shirt back with you. It says, no compromise. Yeah. What does Elisha say? Verse 19. Go in peace. Go in peace. Naaman says, part of my job is bowing down in the temple of Ramon. It is complicated. And he says, go in peace. Elisha doesn't say, get out of there. Come live with us, the good people in Israel. Elisha says, go in peace. This word is shalom. The word shalom means right relationship, right? What Things are just as how they are supposed to be. Everything is all right with you and God, God's favor, God's blessing. Naaman says, I might bow down. Elisha says, go in peace and the blessing of God. I wonder how many of you live your lives and you work and live in the temple of Ramon. Every day you go into situations that are really hard. You know, how do you balance people and your job? You know, say you're a believer and you've got to sort through how to be a follower and things get really, really sticky when you're in the temple of Ramon. Maybe you work or live among a people who are totally different and you have a total different mindset than you. And they crack a joke and it's very degrading and, and you've got to decide, do I laugh or do I not laugh? Which begs the question, was it funny or was it not funny? You know, what do you do? This is one of the reasons why I tell you that Element is being what's called a missional church. We believe every single person is a missionary where you live. It doesn't mean you wear a robe and put on sandals and grow a beard like Jesus and you're going to burn in hell. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus related perfectly to the culture that he was in. You dress a certain way. You work a certain place. You have friends that are... And you connect with them because you are missionaries in the culture that you're in. We serve a different king, though. And this king loves people and longs people to, to stop doing things in their lives that's just destroying them and to live a life of purpose. That's you and I living in the Temple of Vermont. I mean, do you know what the Temple of Vermont looks like? It could be your family. It could be your school. It could be your work. And you have to love and be bonded to people who are doing stuff that's just killing them. And it breaks your heart. And sometimes things become fuzzy and hard and tense. And some people just say, well, you know, just follow Jesus and he'll tell you what to do. Sometimes following Jesus means things just get way more complicated. Way more. Sometimes things become a little gray. Not because we compromised or rejected God's ways. It is because of the truth and our commitment to Jesus to take him seriously that we end up in the temple of Ramon in the first place. Because that's where God wants us. How is this king of Aram going to hear about Yahweh, the God of Israel, unless somebody tells him? And who is the only person who has enough weight and significance and respect for the king of Aram to listen to? The Ishkadul, Naaman. 
He sends Naaman back as a missionary to the culture in which he is a part of so he can be God's representative. I mean, how are people here about God where you are? You. That's how it works. This is how God works in the world. Jesus also goes to the Temple of Ramon in a way. Jesus goes to Samaria. He talks with a sinful woman. He talks to their whole town. They all end up getting saved and believing in who he is, all because he was willing to do something that we as religious people, if we were back in that day, would have looked at and said, oh, he shouldn't be there. But where else should God be? You know, where else should we be but seeking the lost in the Temple of Ramon? God is the only God. He is for everyone. He has revealed himself in Jesus. And you don't need dirt. You just need faith. And that faith may take you sometimes to places that are very, very hard. And yet those hard places, they need to hear about Jesus too. You know, they don't need to hear about you and your dirt. They need to hear about Jesus. Hear about him, what he has done, what he has done for you. And he has enabled us to worship God, the only God, again, by bringing us into right relationship with him. That is who you and I are called to do and be living in the temple of Vermont. Because I know sometimes it's hard. It's hard where you draw the line. It's hard. And yet we are exactly where God needs us to be. And so you live. I mean, many times people are going to know who Jesus is more by how you live than the things that you say. Sometimes I get really scared when Christians open their mouths because they think that's how they're supposed to spread the gospel. You spread the gospel by how you live. How you live. Jesus touched people, loved people, places his hands on people no one else would touch. It's a beautiful thing. We do this every week. We come to communion because communion reminds us of how Jesus came to us to love and redeem us so that we could worship him as the one true God again. We be restored in a right relationship. We break the cracker that represents his body that was broken, and then we dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us to bring us into right relationship again. And we worship God through prayer. There's going to be some elders in the back of the room. And if you're in the Temple of Vermont and you're very confused, pray with them. If, you, if you're like, I, I've got all these weird little things going on in my head about how God's supposed to be, and you're just worshiping dirt, pray with them. Get a better clarity and a better focus of who God really is and who Jesus really is. We worship God uh, through songs. The band's going to come up, and they're going to do a couple songs. And our songs remind us of our great God, that He reigns over everything, that, that He is the God who loves and came and sought us. We worship God through giving. There's operating boxes on the side wall and in the back, in the back bag. And we give because God gave so much us and then we hang out and we talk to each other we go bowling and, and watch chad kick everybody's butt and you know we play softball and and we eat food together and we hang out on thanksgiving and we we do all these things because god has taken and restored a relationship with us and him and that relationship then extends between people so our relationship with others can be restored as well and Paul tells us in the New Testament that he has given us, you and I, this ministry of reconciliation, that we are to be reconciled to people and help people reconcile to God, even in the temple of Ramon. That's what he calls us to. And it's a great calling that, that God, who can do everything, entrusts us with some stuff. And I know sometimes we totally screw it up because we're people. But yet, he still entrusts us with that. And it's a great and beautiful thing. So this morning, let's worship him for who he is our great and good God. Let's pray.
Father, this morning, we ask that we would be people who not only understand the calling that you placed in us to go to very hard places, but also the calling you placed in us to experience your love and your joy and your grace, that you are the great God, the true God, the only God. God, have us be those, while we're in the Temple of Ramon, to live in humbleness so we can hear you. The words that you want to say to us so that we know how to live and love those around us. God, there is no one like you. There's no one like you. And we worship you this morning. And I ask that our hearts become fully yours. That again, this day, you reset us to live our lives so that you are honored more and more and more. And that those around us living in the Temple of Vermont would come to know you as well. Amen.